Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that Jesus would be all, that he would be everything to us, that he would be our solid rock. We have no other claim to salvation, no other hope except being found righteous in him. Lord, we pray that you would be our delight, our treasure, that the affections of our heart would be set on you and you alone over all other things in this world. Lord, we confess that our faith is often weak and our hearts are often distracted and divided. And so we ask that by your spirit and with your grace, you would bring about change in us today. As your word is preached, as the precious truths of your word are rehearsed in song, we ask God that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. I invite you all to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 15. There was a day in my life, it was almost 12 years ago, and it's a day that I'll never forget. Uh, it's very vivid in my mind. It was a Tuesday. I remember what the weather was like. Um, it was on December 20th of 2005. And on that day, my life changed in a very big way. Nothing would ever be the same after that. There's not a moment that goes by in my life now that's not shaped by what happened on that day. It's shaped my life over the last 12 years. It affects every moment now, and it's actually going to shape every moment for the rest of my life. It's left an indelible imprint and changed the trajectory of my whole life because on that day, there were certain plans and promises that I had made to Sarah McQuinn, and on that day, those promises and plans became formalized into more than a dating relationship. She was no longer my girlfriend, more than um, even engagement. I was no longer her fiance. On that day, she became my wife. I became her husband. More than just even a contract recognized by the state of Kansas, what happened that day was we entered together into a covenant. It was the covenant of marriage, a formally binding agreement, a binding agreement that was marked by solemn vows. We swore before God and before the people that were gathered there that night that we would love each other exclusively and faithfully until death do us part. Outside my salvation, there's nothing in the world that's more precious or more significant to me. And I know many of you probably have a similar story. Well, in the life of Abram, who many, many times we refer to as Abraham, his name hadn't been changed yet, but in the life of Abram, as we've been studying through Genesis, there was a day that happened to him, a day that he would always look back on as the day when everything changed. In fact, it was a day when he changed because of what happened. It was the day when God made a covenant with him, more than words, more even than, than promises, more than the previous relationship that had existed, it was a day in which God swore an oath to Abram and obligated himself formally and officially to this man forever. Not only would Abram look back to this day and the events of this day as a watershed moment in his life, but so also would his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and the nation of Israel that would come through his descendants. They would look back to this day these promises, this covenant as the hook upon which their entire faith hung. Not only did the nation Israel, as the people of God, look back to this covenant that was made on this day, but God himself would look back to the covenant obligations of that day and base his dealings with his people 
upon the promises that were cemented by an oath on that day. I want us to consider this morning the unique event in the life of Abram, this covenant that God made with him. But as we work through this story, we're also going to discover not just some unique events in Abram's life, we'll also discover several universal principles that are essential for us to understand today as the people of God. To give us just a little bit of context, in Genesis chapter 12, you'll remember, you can even flip back there, because this is very important. You'll remember that God called a man named Abram to leave his home and go to a new land, and God made some incredible promises to him, promises that included land and offspring and blessing. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, after some ups and downs, which we won't have time to recap all of those, Abram was now in the land in chapter 15. His wealth and his fame are growing, but he is still childless. There are no offspring, and he still does not possess the land, and he's not getting any younger. And if you can put yourself in Abram's shoes, you can probably find it easy to understand why he might start to wonder, what about the promise? God, are you still serious about what you said back then? This is the question that haunts Abram in his weaker moments. He struggles with it. And it's a question that God will now answer definitively. What about the promise? We see that God, first of all, confirms the promise in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 15, we see the promise confirmed by the word of the Lord. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In verse 1, it says, after these things. Just to remind us what happened. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about chapter 14. Lot had been captured by this coalition of invading armies. When Abram hears of it, he goes to rescue his nephew. He had been on the mountaintop. God had kept his promise to bless those who bless and curse those who dishonor. He had been with Abram and given him a supernatural victory. And Abram had wisely refused uh, the offer of enrichment from the king of Sodom. And he had experienced the blessing of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who said, blessed are you, Abram. And blessed be the God who has given you this great deliverance. He had been on the mountaintop. But after this mountaintop experience, like many of us probably can relate to, everything gets back to normal. Armies all go home. All the celebration is over. Melchizedek's back at Salem. And now he's back in his tent. It's the daily grind of normal life. And God, in this moment, speaks to him a word of encouragement. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Your reward shall be great. It's a word of encouragement. The word of the Lord comes to Abram. This is important because in this chapter, we see this phrase, the word of the Lord, two different times. Six different times we are told what God said, that God says, God said. It's by God's word that he creates, as we saw in Genesis chapter one. It's by his word that he judges, and it's by his word that he saves. And here, in this interaction with Abram, it is through God's word that he awakens and imparts faith. Abram's faith has always been a response to the self-revelation of God. We've seen it in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 that God speaks, and it's this speaking to Abram, 
he, he responds to that in faith. And God speaks to him to encourage him. He gives him this instruction. First, he says, fear not. Fear not. He had faced this coalition of kings, and he had done so with courage. He'd emerged victorious. But you have to imagine that Abram was wondering, so are these guys going to go home, lick their wounds, regroup, and come back? Because they'd already proven to be a very vengeful group of guys. They had come to prove a point to all the different nations of this land. Now he's tired, and the adrenaline is gone. And perhaps he's wondering, what's going to happen next? God tells him, fear not. And he gives him some reasons to be encouraged. First, he says, for I am your shield. I am your shield, Abram. That's why you don't have to be afraid. The root of this word shield is this, comes from the same word that Melchizedek used. If you look back in chapter 14, verse 20, Melchizedek said, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. That word delivered is the same root word that's translated shield in chapter 15. God is the one who delivered him from those enemies. And God is still his shield now. He says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. The Psalms triumphantly ring with this encouraging truth many times. It's the source of our hope and trial. Psalm 3 verse 3 says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's encouraging, isn't it? God is our shield who is our glory who lifts our head. Don't hang your head. God is your shield. Psalm 18 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress And my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 84.11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He says, Abram, fear not, I am your shield. And you can trust me. You can trust me. But God continues, there's a second reason to be encouraged. Not only is God his shield, but look at what he says. He says, your reward shall be very great. You see, Abram had nothing to show from his courageous conquest of all these invading kings. He had wisely resisted and rejected that entanglement from the, the king of Sodom, who offered for him to keep some of the spoils. He had said no to that, and that was wisdom. But that meant that he's, he has nothing to show for all of his heroics. But God tells him that, listen, your benefactor will not be the king of Sodom. Your benefactor will not even be Pharaoh. You were enriched when you went to Egypt because of your deceit and your unbelief. But that's not the reward I promise you. God says your reward will be great. Your reward is still to come. Abram, you may feel like you're missing out on some things now, but your day is coming. Don't be afraid. I'm your protector. And like we sang this morning, I am your reward. I am your reward. So God speaks to him this word of encouragement. But notice how Abram responds. He responds with uncertainty and confusion. Look in verse 2. But Abram said, I mean, God speaks to him. Then it says, but. But Abram says, back to God. For the first time here, we have Abram responding to the word of the Lord. And he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. He's uncertain. He's confused. He's wrestling with a serious concern. God, you promised me this reward, but what use is it if all of my reward evaporates after I'm gone because I have no son? I have no heir. 
Though his faith was real, he's struggling to see exactly how all this is going to work out. And he's searching for assurance that God is going to do what he promised. Perhaps he's even, you know, maybe kind of investigating, like, God, are you intending for me to, like, adopt my servant, for him to be my heir? That was a common custom in the the region. Is that what you're talking about? I don't have a son. Maybe you can relate. You hear the promises of God, but sometimes we're uncertain and we're confused and we don't understand how God is going to fulfill his promises. And so we struggle, we wrestle. God in his grace is patient with those whose faith is small and weak. God confirms the promise in verses four through five. Once again, we see this amazing statement that the word of the Lord came to him. Verse four, here's what God said. This man Eliezer, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then look what he does next. He brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God's divine response to Abram's searching and his uncertainty is a gracious word of affirmation and confirmation. Once again, God's word comes to him and says, listen, you are going to have a son, your very own son, not a son by adoption, not a son who was born of a different father and mother. You, Abram, are going to have a son by birth, your own flesh and blood. Three times before this, chapter 12, and up to this point, God had promised him offspring and descendants, but now he makes it explicit that it would be no symbolic descendants. It would be his own flesh and blood. Now, it's still not clear from this text whether or not his wife Sarai would be the mother, and in fact, that's something that, that will have to be discovered later. That becomes an issue for Abram. But for now, this is a new revelation that it would be his very own son. And then he takes him outside and says, look to the stars. God says, your descendants will be many. You see, God is not just going to barely fulfill this promise. It's not like he's going to get just enough of a passing grade to qualify as keeping this promise. No, he's not going to squeak out some fulfillment. It's going to be innumerable descendants. As Abraham says nothing, he gazes at the stars. He's struck by the vast expanse. Imagine, you know, being out there. We live in the city here. There's lots of lights and, you know, there's a a plant up here north of the highway. But if you're out there in the wilderness, some of you have been out in the middle of nowhere, maybe in the mountains or maybe out in the desert, the sky looks different. It just looks different. If you've seen that, it's amazing. And as Abram looks up and he considers the stars, he gazes at the stars. And as the word of the Lord is resonating in his mind and permeating his heart, something profound happens. Something profound happens. The promise has been confirmed by the word of the Lord. But number two, as we look at verse six, we see here that the promise is embraced by faith in the Lord. Chapter 15, verse six. As he's looking at the stars, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Pastor Kent Hughes writes that Abram saw the stars, and beyond the stars, he saw the promise, and beyond the promise, God himself. And Abram believes. The word for believe here is aman. Sounds a lot like the word amen. It's where we get that word from. Abram considered that God's promise is true. 
And his heart affirms that. His heart embraces that, that the word of God, because God himself is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy, and he embraces it wholeheartedly. He believes. He believes. Now, you might wonder, because we've talked about this, hasn't Abram already shown faith? And this is a question I was wrestling with this week as I'm reading through this, because we've seen the trajectory of Abram's faith as it increases. It started back in chapter 12. You don't leave your homeland and everything that's familiar and go to some unknown unknown place unless you believe that God's telling the truth, right? Unless you believe that God is who he is. We've seen it in chapter 13 as, as he trusted God enough to say, Lot, you take first choice of the land because I believe God is going to give it to me. So I don't have to grasp and manipulate and force it right now to work out. We saw uh, his courage and his faith in chapter 14. He goes against this undefeated army because he believes God is with him and will bless him. So we've seen faith. So what does it mean here that he believed and God counted it as righteousness? He credited it to him as righteousness. Well, here's what I think is going on. Yes, Abram had believed that God was there. And he had believed that God's word was true. And he had acted accordingly. That's, that's faith. But here, something new happens. He believes the word of God. He believes the promise specifically. And here's where it's important. He believes the promise specifically concerning offspring. Concerning offspring. Why is that so significant? Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3? Remember that Adam and Eve had sinned. Death, the curse, judgment entered into the world because of their sin. But there was a promise that the seed of the woman, her offspring, would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. That he would defeat God's enemies. And the implication is that he would provide deliverance for those who suffered under the curse. The one who crushed the head of the serpent would be Christ. The offspring of Adam and Eve, the offspring one day of Abraham, the offspring of King David, the promised descendant would be none other than Jesus. And here's where it's key. Salvation, righteousness, a right relationship with God can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Now for us, we look back to that, don't we? We look back and say Jesus came and he died and he rose again. And by trusting in that, we too, like Abram, are counted righteous. But Abram didn't have that whole story. He was looking ahead to the future, and as he trusted in the promise of offspring, his faith was in the future of what God would accomplish through that offspring, and that's why it's at this moment that a change happens in his heart. You see, you can believe that God is real. You can believe that God tells the truth, and you can even somewhat order your life accordingly, but until you trust in the work of Christ, you are not counted righteous. It's at this moment that Abram believes the promise of offspring. He believes the shadowy future promise that would one day take shape in the saving work of Jesus. And that's why Moses gives us this earth-shattering comment. He believed the Lord, and then here's the comment. He counted it to him. God counted it to Abram as righteousness. You see, righteousness is the prerequisite for a relationship with God. Our problem, our universal problem, is that we are not righteous. We are sinful. And unless you are righteous, you cannot be in relationship with God. You cannot enter into his presence, and you deserve judgment and condemnation, not blessing and eternal life. How can we become righteous? We see here that it's not through Abram's obedience or through his good works that he is made righteous. God considers him righteous. God makes him righteous on the basis 
of his faith. It's on the basis of his faith that he's made by God to be acceptable to God. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 4. And he writes in Romans 4.21 that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now this is a landmark verse. It's a landmark verse, not just in the life of Abraham, but in the story of Scripture. This is so huge that the Apostle Paul unpacks it, not only in Romans chapter 4, but also in Galatians chapter 3. James, the brother of Jesus, brings it up in James chapter 2. The New Testament doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. That's not a new doctrine that was invented by Paul. It's not a new doctrine that was invented by the reformers in the 1500s. No, this has been the operative principle ever since the beginning. Righteousness on the basis of faith. This concept is at the heart of the gospel and it is central to the message of salvation. And here we have the prime example of Abraham. He believes the word of God. He trusts in the word of God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So we've seen the promise confirmed by the word of the Lord. We've seen the promise embraced by faith in the Lord. And then third, we see that the promise is cemented by the covenant with the Lord. This takes us through the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 21. Just as God would later preface his covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai, with monumental language. If you remember, if you've read that story, heard that story, God speaks to them and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He addresses Abram in a similar way. He says, I am the Lord, verse 7, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Here God points to his initiative in his relationship with Abram. Abram, you're believing in me right now. And I'm considering you righteous, but you need to remember that I'm the one who sought you out. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who brought you here. Be reminded that I'm the one who moved towards you. You see, understanding who God is and understanding our relationship with him can never be separated from God's gracious acts of deliverance. And he addresses Abram and says, remember that I'm the one who called you, and I brought you here to give you this land to possess. But Abram responds to this, and he says in verse 8, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's believed the word of the Lord concerning offspring, but he's still at this point wrestling with with the promise about the land. But I don't think here that his question is an expression of unbelief because God doesn't rebuke him. I think this is a case of small faith and weak faith because God responds in grace. If you read Luke chapter one, you see there's a man named Zechariah who was the father of John the Baptist. His wife, like Abram's wife, was old and barren. God promised him that he would have a son, and he didn't believe it. And God rebuked him, and he actually took away his ability to speak until that child was born, because there was unbelief there. God doesn't respond that way to Abram. So reading between the lines, I I think we can assume that Abram here is wanting to believe, and he's trying to believe. He's saying, God, I I believe you're going to give me offspring, And you promised me this land, but it's full of all these other people. Like, how am I to know that this is what you're going to do? I think that Abram's question here is sort of in line with the cry of the man we meet in Mark chapter 9 who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. How does God respond to Abram's searching and his grasping for assurance? 
Well, he tells him to make preparation, verses 9 through 11. God is going to give him something so that he might know that he will possess it. He says to Abram in verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. God responds by giving Abram instructions to prepare, to prepare for a covenant ceremony. Now, I mentioned the, the concept we are familiar with today of a marriage covenant. We make preparations for that. Usually, it doesn't include bloody carcasses lined up in a big path, right? Usually, we have cute things like lanterns and candles and flower petals, and that's what we walk down to finalize the covenant. Well, they were getting ready to walk the aisle here. But there were no candles. There was no flower petals. There was blood that had been shed. Not just to beautify the occasion, but to show the seriousness and the binding nature of what was about to take place. More than a promise, God was giving a guarantee. God was going to enter into a solemn agreement that was formally binding. And the shedding of blood would signify the ratification of this covenant. The shedding of blood is what would say, this is now literally written in blood, sealed in blood. These promises are now made sure. So he does all this, and as the eagles and the vultures, whatever scavenger birds were coming down, Abram drove them away, and he's waiting. He's waiting at the altar, in a sense, and he does not have to wait forever. Verse 17, we see something amazing happen. We'll actually back up before that. Um, Verse 13, or verse 12, as the sun was going down, backing up even more, as the sun was going down, it tells us that a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Okay, he's made everything prepared. He's protected these carcasses from the scavengers. And now a deep sleep falls upon Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gives him here some prophetic clarification. God does intend to give him this land. But first, something else is going to happen. We see that a deep sleep falls upon Abram. It's this great and dreadful darkness. And this is significant because we see this in some other important places in Scripture, other places where covenants are being ratified. If you remember when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law of God, a great and dreadful darkness and a cloud, thunder and lightning covers the mountain. And the people of Israel who are forbidden to touch even the the foot of the mountain, they stand back and they are terrified. Because the presence of the Lord, God himself, is coming down to meet them. We see it happen as Jesus hangs on the cross. As the new covenant is ratified in his blood, darkness covers the land. There's three hours of this supernatural eclipse. And the earth itself shakes and quakes because something significant is happening. And something big is happening here. The dreadful darkness falls on Abram. Because God is drawing near. 
God has shown up, not to destroy him, but to enter into covenant with him. But before God solidifies this covenant and cements these promises, God once again speaks. And he says, no for certain. Abraham said, how shall I know? And God says, no for certain that you will have offspring and they will inherit this land. But here's what God tells him. And he clarifies, says, listen, Abram, this isn't going to happen right away. It's not going to even happen in your lifetime. And it's not going to happen without much difficulty and opposition. He prophesies, or he gives them this this prophetic word of of Egyptian captivity. We know the children of Israel would sojourn in Egypt and be slaves there for 430 years. And he gives them this, says, listen, it's going to be a while, four generations before they return and inherit the land. But one day they will. They will come out. I will give them great possessions. All of this comes to fulfillment in the book of Exodus. And he also tells him, he gives him some insight into God's dealing with the Amorites. And if, you, if you're reading this, you might say, why does he start talking about the iniquity of the Amorites? They were the ones who inhabited the land. And we see here that God is not just concerned with Abram and his offspring. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the nations. And God has purposes and plans for all these people. And we're given here some insight into God's, God's patience with these wicked Canaanite peoples, only when their sinfulness reached the point of no return, only when God could bear with their wickedness no more would they forfeit the land. And this is important because when we get to the book of Joshua and Joshua leads the people in in conquest, it is not an act of aggression. It's an act of justice. And God has every right to raise up a people and use them to bring justice to a wicked and immoral nation whose iniquities have reached the brim and are overflowing, and God says, I can bear with this no longer. And that's exactly what's going to happen over 400 years later when they come back on conquest. We see here that Israel is going to be given the land, not just because God's being playing favorites, but because of the wickedness of the former residents. And this will be important because Israel would one day also forfeit this same land because of their own wickedness. God is justified in using one nation to judge another. And this word to Abram foreshadows what would one day play out on an international stage. We see here this God's divine patience, as well as his perfect justice, as well as his perfect faithfulness and sovereignly controlling the acts of the nations to bring about all his promises and all his plans. His justice would fall, not a moment too soon or a moment too late, because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. I love Isaiah 46, 8. God says, remember this and stand firm. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God gives Abram this insight into the future. He says, listen, there's going to be a delay in the fulfillment of all of this. There's going to be great difficulty and suffering. But he gives him some encouragement. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. You will actually die in peace. You'll be buried with your fathers. You won't see all of this trouble. But know that I will do all that I have said. But I'll do it in my time, and I'll do it in my way. So he gives him this clarification so that Abram won't have to ask again. God, are you going to give me the land? He's he's told him exactly what's going to happen. This revelation speaks to Abram's experience. The delay and difficulty will not mean that God has forgotten. 
They do not mean that God's not keeping his promise, just that God's timing is God's timing. The God of promise who Abram believes in is sovereign and he will do all that he intends. He's told him, listen, but you're not going to see any of this. You will die in peace. You won't be killed by invaders. You won't be troubled by oppressors. You'll die in a good old age. So God clarifies what he intends to do. He's told him to make gracious preparation for this covenant. He's given him this clarification. Then we see in verses 17 through 21 the awesome and ominous ratification of this covenant. Abram had asked a question, how will I know that I am to inherit the land? And God has answered him. He's spoken to him. But God does more than just speak. Here we see that God actually shows up. When the sun had gone down, verse 17, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God does more than speak. He shows up. The darkness and the dread that fell upon Abram are merely the accompanying circumstances to the fearful display of God's glory and God's holiness as he passes through the divided animals. The burning and the smoking are manifestations of his presence, like the burning bush where later Moses would hear the God of Abram and Isaac and Jacob speaking to him, like the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that led the people through the wilderness, like the glory of the Lord, that cloud that filled the tabernacle and later the temple when it was commissioned. God appears here to complete this ceremony. His presence is there. But Abram does not participate. Abram's job is to prepare the elements and then to sit back and watch. God's part is to walk the path alone. And the symbolism of this is that God is taking upon himself all of the covenant stipulations. There is no end of the deal for Abram to hold up. God says, I will do all of this. I will bring it all to pass. And I'm taking the curse of breaking this covenant upon myself. He swears by himself, by, him, by passing through the divided animals here. This is what we call a unilateral covenant, not a bilateral covenant where there's two parties involved. There's one party, it's God, and he passes through. And he declares the stipulations of the covenant. He says, to your offspring, I give this land. And he tells them exactly what the borders will be. This is God's covenant with Abram. He swears a solemn oath that he will uphold all that this covenant guarantees. What an experience for Abram. I mean, imagine being there, shaken to the core, in awe of God's presence, blown away by God's promises. There is this sense of smallness and frailty as the holiness and glory of God passes before you. Never again will he need to ask, how will I know that you're going to keep your promises? Because he could look back to this day and remember the covenant of God. What a life-changing event in the life of the man of God. God had cemented his promises by means of this covenant. But I want to pull out some universal principles. Some universal principles for us as the people of God. Because in this story, what we see is we see a God who is speaking and a God who is acting. And we see a man who is believing and a man who is obeying. 
And that's descriptive of our relationship with God today. God speaks to us through his word. God has acted definitively in the sending of his son to die and rise again for our sins. Our part is to believe and to obey. This is a definitive example for us of how God relates to his people. And in this exchange between God and Abram, we learn a few things. We we can identify with some of these things. Number one, faith is often difficult and is not static. As we consider Abram, who is held up in, in many places in Scripture, especially in Hebrews 11, as the man of faith, we see that his faith ebbs and flows, that sometimes it is weak, sometimes it is strong. Sometimes he wrestles, sometimes he is confident. Faith is difficult, and it is not static. The reality is we have to fight for faith, don't we? Faith is a fight. We pray like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's encouraging here to see that God is gracious and patient with those whose faith is often small. God seeks to strengthen Abram's faith and encourage him. And how does God do that? This is instructive for us. How is weak faith strengthened? How is small faith grown and expanded? It's through the word of God. The word of God that affirms God's character and confirms God's promises. It's the word that strengthens our faith. As Paul says in Romans, faith comes by what? By hearing. That's not only true for salvation, for justification. That's also how we grow. It's true for sanctification. That's how we persevere, by clinging to the word of God. If you're fighting for faith this morning, let me ask you, what are you doing with your doubts? Like, how, how are you handling that? How are you managing that? How are you, how are you in, engaging with the battle in your heart to believe? Where do you look for confirmation that God will, in fact, do all that he has promised to do for you? We look to the word. We look to the word of God to strengthen and establish our faith. I want to encourage you this morning, if your faith is small, if you're wrestling, if you hear the promises of God, and sometimes it's just like, that's too good to be true, and I don't know if I can really live like that. I want to admonish you this morning to seek the word of the Lord, his word, his promises, because they will strengthen and confirm your faith. Not only do we look to the word of God, but we also look to the covenant. We look to the ratification of God's covenant that assures us that his promises will be kept. We sang it this morning. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. Life can be like a flood. There's a million things coming our way, barraging us with doubt and with discouragement, with uncertainty. But the author of that song writes, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. We look to the cross because there the blood of Christ was shed to inaugurate the new covenant. The promise of forgiveness of sins and relationship with God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. It's ours because of what Christ did. So if your faith is small, look to the cross and receive the word of God. That's how faith is strengthened and solidified and grown. Faith is difficult. Faith is not static. It ebbs and flows. But look to the word of God and the definitive work of God on the cross that brings his covenant promises to us. Secondly, massively important point. We already talked about it a little bit. Righteousness comes through faith. It's not just true for Abraham Abraham and his story. This is true throughout scripture, throughout history, in our lives. Don't miss this because this is at the heart of the gospel. Romans 4, 23. Paul writes, 
but the words it was counted to him, get this, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's not just for Abraham. It's for us as well. Just as the animals were slaughtered and the shedding of their blood formalized the covenant with Abraham, the shed blood of Christ inaugurates a new covenant where we are guaranteed salvation. And it's a salvation that is given to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Like that doctrine of the Reformation, sola fide, is only through faith that we can be made righteous. Romans 10.10 says, with the heart one believes and is justified. That word justified means made righteous. How do we become righteous? It's not through giving money. It's not even through doing good things like sharing the gospel or helping the poor, being a good husband or a good mom or a good son or daughter or a good employee. It's not through your worship. It's not by how much scripture you memorize. It is on the basis of faith alone that we are declared to be righteous before God. It's a righteousness that's not ours. It's what theologians call an alien righteousness. It's actually Christ's righteousness that is given to us. I love what A.W. Pink wrote. He says, Abram believed God would give him a son through the quickening of his body. By believing that God has given us his son and through his death and quickening from the dead, a savior. That's ours through faith. That's how we are counted righteous as well. Abram believed, and it's paradigmatic for salvation in all time. This is how God always has saved people, and it's how he always will save people. And that should be our confidence. That should be our confidence. I love what Paul writes in Philippians 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, our problem is twofold. We are guilty sinners, and we lack righteousness. Jesus solves both of those problems. He atones for our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. That's why we look to him through faith. It's through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. You see, God is not looking for self-made men. God's not looking for deservers of his grace. It's not really a word. You, but you know what God's looking for? He's looking for faith. He's looking for men and women, for boys and girls who know their need and they cast themselves on the mercy of God. For weak sinners who simply believe. So trust his word, believe the promise. Salvation comes through faith alone. The implication of that is that salvation depends fully on God. We don't contribute to it. Be humbled. Be humbled by that this morning. If you're a believer and you're like, yeah, I believe that, J.D., I, I, I agree and I'm with you, how should we feel about this? We should be humbled, shouldn't we? Remember what the American theologian um, Jonathan Edwards wrote. He said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's humbling, isn't it? We ought to be humbled by this this morning. God is the one who does it all. It's all of grace. But be encouraged as well. If you feel weak, it's because you are. I don't want to sit here this morning and tell you you're strong. You're an overcomer. No, you're weak. But Christ is strong. You failed, but Christ is the victor. 
And if you will be crucified with him, in a sense, united with him through faith, his victory is yours, his strength is yours, his righteousness is yours. So be encouraged. Jesus is mighty to save, but also be warned. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own efforts and your own good works, you are without hope. It will not be enough. It cannot be enough. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. And he continues, By works of the law, the good things we do, no one will be justified. There will be no one who stands before the judge on the last day who is righteous because of the things they did. No one. No exceptions. You won't be the first. If you're trusting in your own efforts to be good enough, Let me tell you, you are sadly without hope this morning. Come to Christ and believe in him. It's through faith that we are made righteous. Salvation depends on God alone. And then a final word, a principle that is universal, and it's this. Fulfillment of God's promises may include delay and difficulty. A lot of you are walking through that right now. You know the promises of God. You know that he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. You know he's going to raise us again. You know he's going to bring justice to those who are oppressed. You know that he's going to rescue you from that battle you fight against your own sin and your own heart. You know that all of your sacrifices and all of your waiting and all of your faith will be rewarded as we receive a great and eternal inheritance. But that day is not today, is it? And that's hard sometimes. Fulfillment of the promise may include delay and difficulty. We must persevere. Keep trusting in the promise. Simply because there is delay or difficulty does not mean God has forgotten. And it does not mean he will not keep his word. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're struggling this morning because you say, I know the promises of God, but it seems a long way off. You're in good company. You're in good company because this is the testimony of the saints throughout the ages. Read Hebrews chapter 11. You see that these people looked ahead to a fulfillment that they never saw in their lifetime. And much of that is to be our experience as well. Though hardships come, though our reward may seem far off, we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ to trust that he will perform all that he has promised. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Peter tells us, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a future aspect to the grace that is ours through Christ. It's a grace that will be revealed, not today, but on that day. Believe that. Don't quit. Persevere. Keep trusting. God will fulfill his promise. God will fulfill it. May we cling to these glorious truths today with the faith of Abram. Let's look to the God of promise. Let's trust in his word. And let's walk by faith, confident that the God we serve is a God who keeps covenant. The God we serve has given us his own son. He shed his blood for us. And we can be sure that on that day, there will be grace and reward and inheritance an eternal life that is revealed for all who are righteous, for all who are rightly related to God through faith. Let's hold on to that. Let's hold on to that. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your word which, which invites faith, which even creates and grows our faith. Your word strengthens our faith. I thank you, God, that we are not without hope. It's not left to us to figure out how to become righteous and make ourselves righteous. You've provided all that we lack in Christ. I pray, God, that you would awaken faith in the hearts of any this morning who don't know you, those who are not yet counted as righteous. I pray, God, that they would see your grace and your provision and all that you have offered us through the shed blood of your Son. I pray that they would come today and believe. Lord, for those of us who have believed, who do believe, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Help us to look to the cross and look to your word when we struggle, when things are discouraging, when you seem distant, when we go through hardships. Help us to remember that you have cemented these things through the shedding of your son's blood, sworn by an oath. You've sworn by yourself, and you always keep your word. You always fulfill your plans. You always keep your promises. We are encouraged by that, God, this morning, and pray that you would help us to be good stewards of this truth. Like the reformers who went before us, help us to champion these truths as the only hope for salvation. We pray that you would strengthen us for this task. In Christ's name, amen.